All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Avalanche. They're the layer one blockchain that is fast, stable, and scalable. You're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. For now, let's get into it. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup on Bell Curve. You're joined by Michaels 1 and 2. No mics, just Michaels on the show. We got Yano and Vance as well. Bells, welcome back. Glad to be back. Vance. You know, Vance, you didn't need to dress up so nice for us on this episode. So it's following, Vince, following Vince, on you video. Look, you look phenomenal. <laughs> you really gussied up. I mean, yeah. this is a casual program, man. I mean, there's no need to go all out for this. Listen, I'm, I, I got shit to do other than this as well. You know? <laughs> oh, man. Comfort, not speed. Yeah. Just double fisting LaCroix out here. <laughs> it was, tell, it was, tell me how you're really big, doing. Where, where, Vance, give us a little background here, buddy. What? What happened last night? What did you get up to last night? What was going on? <laughs> no, we're not putting this in the show. Absolutely <laughs> fucking not. Oh, man. Look, keep right, it we moving. can skip. Th- All right, we'll keep it moving. We can skip the personal. We can skip the personal life stuff. Theme of this episode this is a no redemption arc episode. Zero redemption arcs. All right. This goes for SBF, goes for Sue, goes for Kyle, goes for Doe. No redemption arcs on this. Uh, I do want to get your guys' thoughts on the deal book interview that he gave yesterday with Andrew Ross Sorkin. So I watched this whole thing. I thought, to his credit, I was a little bit worried about this. I thought Andrew Ross Sorkin actually did a very good job, or just about as good of a job as you can possibly do. He asked a lot of hard questions. He asked very specific questions that I think he got a lot of the nuance right. I think he got about 80% of the nuance right. There was one specific question that he talked about money laundering or washing between Alameda and FTX that I actually thought he got backwards that we've talked about on this show. And I want to clear that up and get your guys' opinions on it. But, you know, just in general, what did you guys think of SBF's decision to give this interview? Do you think he's, you know, what's the word for getting himself in trouble from a legal liability standpoint? Do you think he's making strides in the court of public opinion? What what are your high-level thoughts? And then we can dig into some of the specific uh my my initial read is that number one i don't know if you also saw the good morning america interview that he gave with george stephanopoulos that aired this morning um my visceral read and and having gone through a little bit of this myself and ourselves is he's been media trained for this exact situation he knows how to answer the questions he knows how to how to give non-answers he knows how to divert the question into something that is not relevant to whatever the question is in his answer. Um, and and so the whole like my lawyer, I'm going against my lawyers in their advice in going on these different interviews and talking about this stuff, I think is actually completely false. I think this is part of a PR strategy to be able to have the ability to, to have plausible d- doubt that he actually knew what was going on. Um, but yeah, the I was also worried that Andrew Ross Horkin would basically serve him a bunch of softballs. He was hitting him with every tough question and not letting him get off the core question, which is when did you know and did did you know and when did you know that you were using customer funds um, in in non okay ways? Um, I think what became very clear is that 
Sam was just going to give no answer to that question. He wasn't going to be able to give any sort of clarity. Uh, and then he had to move on because you can't just keep asking the same question for 45 minutes. But I thought basically a whole lot of nothing happened. Some of the people who aren't in our industry, who I talked to that listened to the same interview, thought, number one, it was a car crash. He just looked terrible. Like physically, he looked, you know, not in a good place. Um, and that his answers were just like non-answers. And you can't just plead ignorance on a couple billion dollars of being misplaced based on mislabeling. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that things will come back in the way that we all kind of expect that they will. I just don't know after all of this whether or not that's going to happen. Um, you know, it seems like he's really setting up the narrative of I didn't know what's going on. I agree with Michael. I mean, he um, I think there are a lot of people like I, I like right when Sam got on, I was like, man, this guy looks disheveled. Like, come on, buddy. Like you got to he had that shirt, you know, when it, you like chew a T-shirt and it looks like you're all stressed out and the shirt was kind of hanging in front. Like he's just not looking good. But I, as the inter as the interview went on. As the interview went on, I was like, ooh, like he is constructing a really specific and deliberate public narrative right now. And the, the, the time I got really pissed off actually was when he made the audience laugh. So there was like a series of three things. He made the audience laugh. Then he goes, right? He, he goes, he bounces off of the audience laughing to talk about his charity work and like buying beds in Africa. And then, and then he got the audience to laugh again. And it was like a series of three points in time. And I was just like, and it, oh, and it panned to the audience and the audience was smiling when he was talking about his charity stuff. And I was just like, Ooh, man, like he is. And he's, he's painting this picture that like, he's this, he's, he's like ignoring the advice of his lawyers. And he's like, you know, he doesn't really want to, he shouldn't, he shouldn't be, he's, he's like, I shouldn't be doing this, but like, I, you know, I, I owe it to people you got to see through that. You got to see through that. And the worst part about all this is I feel like some mainstream media folks and, and other bill, like even Bill Ackman, who I think has is really smart and Kevin O'Leary juries out on whether or not he's really smart. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And, uh, Henry Blodgett from Henry Blodgett from uh, business insider. They were, you know, they're coming out saying that they like that they trust him now. And He's not doing these interviews out of the goodness of his heart. He's using he's using this to promote a specific message, um, and that feels obvious. And it pissed me off. Yep. I, I, I think had people want to um, believe the idea that there's like this, you know, like deep state plan to like you know reconfigure and rework his image, because like that feels like kind of orderly at least. I think the alternative is just like this is just chaos. He does not have a plan. The people in the audience who are laughing are just idiots and don't get it. Andrew Ross Sorkin maybe knows like 50% of the story. Like, I think, you know, Sam is still, in my opinion, you know, going to be serving some sort of legal consequence in the near-term future. I don't think this absolves him of that. The money's gone. Like, there kind of is no... Like, like a crime has been committed. The money is no longer there. Like, I think we can yeah, all... Yeah, but let, me, but let me change. But, but So I agree, Vance, that I think he will get in trouble. But what he did successfully, in my mind, with that interview, for a lot of people, is... Um, it, was, it was actually Nick Carter posted about this, and I think he nailed it. He said, this is legal positioning, where perceived intent is the most important thing here. He said, exactly. as Nick Carter put it, he said, manslaughter is a lot less worse 
than first-degree premeditated murder. So he was admitting that things went really wrong. But what he's trying to say is that things went really, really wrong because of risk management and over leverage and they were kids and they weren't sleeping and it was chaotic and like all these reasons why it went wrong, not that it went wrong because it was premeditated. And that was the goal of that interview in my mind and he successfully he successfully got a lot of people to think that. Totally, so, it, it so, doesn't matter the, the intent behind something like wire fraud. No, it, it does. No, it does it matter does. the intent. If, if the, int- the intent, no, it does. It do- if, you, if, he success- I, if he successfully, like it's a really different story. The FTX story and Sam and Alameda story is really different. If he set out to build FTX and they, <clears throat> they had these backdoor channels in 2018 and 2019, and this whole thing was just a front to like s- take money. Like that's really different than like, and Luna hit and in May, like we got over leveraged and like it was just it's not it's not even that. It's not even that. You could start off without the intent of defrauding anyone, but it really comes down to what are the actions that you took while you were, you know, doing all of these things. So going back to it, in one of the, the stories that we didn't cover, uh, but that kind of uh, I think it was maybe last Friday or the Friday before, Elizabeth Holmes was officially charged with 11.25 years of uh, jail time because she committed wire fraud. And the people that she committed wire fraud against were her investors, specifically. And the reason why it was 11 years is because the court found that there was 121, give or take, million dollars of defrauded value from the investors that her misrepresentation of the facts led to. Uh, and and you could very easily assume you know intent with that because you wanted to raise a higher valuation you 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 gave fake documents you gave fake financial statements whatever it was to be able to get that much value into your company that was the that was the intent that was the value but that's also sort of the multiple that I think you know if the same facts and circumstances are found to be here you can kind of assume that there would be some correlation to what what the what the time is the problem is. How can you prove that fake documents, fake information, fake uh, financials were given to investors to, to lead them in the direction of investing? I think, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what this will come down to. The customers, you know, the, the people that Elizabeth Holmes, like, allegedly told uh, that her product uh, allegedly told, you know, were either sick or not sick, you know, it, they didn't even choose to go after that, right? And I would actually argue, you know, like, health is probably a bigger variable here than, than money. And so, you know, having it, misinformation on a health factor wasn't even what the, the prosecution decided to go after. It was all going after the investors. Um, and so I, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I, I, we haven't even talked to anybody about what, you know, the legal perspective is here. But I think if you're going to go after wire fraud, it's about proving what did the investors know and what were they, you know, misled to believe. Here, here's the reason why I think public opinion is always going to be a is always going to be somewhat impactful because in America, when a criminal proceeding is brought, you are tried by a jury of your peers. So when when Sam made those people laugh in the in the interview, it took me back to I don't know if you guys ever watched The Jinx, which is the story of Robert Durst. So there was a period of time where not to, I don't know if people are familiar with the story of Robert Durst. He's kind of the scion of one of these big real estate New York based families, and he was accused of murdering his ex wife. And he actually moved down to Galveston, Texas, and he, on the record, he, he murdered his neighbor down there, chopped up his body, put him in garbage bags, dumped him in the river. They found out about this, and he's getting tried. And he has this defense of being – he has this defense of self – it's like self-defense, I think is what he ends up claiming. 
And he also, he has these weird parallels to Sam because you kind of know he's this monster when you watch him do these things, but you sort of end up kind of being like, um, he somehow finds a way to humanize himself. And the, they, during this documentary, the Jinx, they are interviewing the defendants, the lawyers who represented him during the trial. And they had this phrase that stuck out with me, which was when Robert Durst took the stand and he was describing what happened, he had people in the courtroom laughing. And that, according to the lawyers, was when they knew that Robert Durst was going to get off. So I actually thought, I don't want to read too much into this, but I thought when I heard those people laugh, what it told me was, oh, these people are looking at him as some kid who messed up and not as this criminal mastermind. That's, that was my interpretation listening to it. That's and, my and which worry. Is, which, is exactly what, which is exactly what Henry Blodgett, the guy who started Business Insider, tweeted. He's like, FTX's collapse doesn't mean that someone committed a crime. They were just a highly leveraged financial institution. Their assets plummeted in value while their liabilities stayed the same. Happens all the time. Incompetent, reckless, and stupid, yes, but not necessarily criminal, which is exactly what he wants you to think. And I, yeah, yeah. But, so. but like, the, like, there's a body here. Like, the customer deposits were used to trade. Fraud mm -hmm. was committed. Wire fraud specifically as well. Like, I really no, don't I see agree. I agree with you, Ben. Like he, but I, I think it changes his legal trajectory. No, no, I agree with you. I mean, but I think he realizes that there's no way Sam can win in a legal process. They're like, no ifs, ands, or buts. Sam cannot win in a legal process. So now he ha Now I think what he's doing is turning to the court of public and political opinion, which can turn. There's a lot of ways you can use that to your favor: pardons, sovereign immunity, jury nullification, all, all these different things. The one that comes to mind, other than um, SBF, is M Michael Milken. Kind of like within the same vein of like large-scale financial crimes. You know, he was charged, went to prison for ten years. But now he's, he's out. Kept most of, most of the wealth that he garnered from that. Uh, he, I think he got pardoned by... And didn't he, didn't he, like, his narrative, his redemption arc was finding religion. He's like, I, you know, he's like, I found, I found Jesus, all this stuff, so... Just like Sue found Allah, like, he found Jesus, and he actually got pardoned by Bill Clinton. And so, you know, think, think of, you know, like, let, let's, let's just say that, um, let's say that I'm right, you know, and, and he gets charged, he goes away, there's all these bad things that happen to him, but he's in jail. 2024 comes around, Biden's doing presidential pardons towards the end of his, his term, you know, what is to happen, but SBF, you know, Garner's one of them. That feels more likely in terms of, like, a how he evades the long-term ramifications of what he did, then he gets off because he did a Good Morning America interview. But I think it's all part of the same thing. The public push for the, the recognition. That's not going to help him in a court of law. In fact, that only hurts him. But if you're in the court of like, you know, one person's discretion to give you a pardon, maybe that public perception adds up. But there, there's a very different situation between SBF and Michael Milken, which is that Michael Milken literally broke securities laws. He went to jail because of securities law violations and misrepresenting of, uh, uh, I'm, I actually don't know exactly what it is, but it, but it is not using customer funds to do illicit transactions. The other example of someone who has done essentially exactly what SBF did is John Corzine of MF Global, where in, I think it was the early 2000s, that blew up. He used customer funds, over levered, blah, blah, blah. John Corzine never went to jail. 
And that's because they didn't prove that there was any sort of fraud. It was negligence. You know, they were overlevered, et cetera. <clears throat> it's not necessary, necessarily the case that because you used customer funds, you committed a crime. You violated your own terms of service. You could get sued maybe civilly, um, but it's not necessarily the case that you definitely committed fraud for doing that. Mm. What, what's interesting in, think, the, in the Corzine case as well is, so he took all of his customer deposits and he used them to buy on margin Italian bonds and, and that position moved against him and he eventually like blew up and had to kind of, you know, fold up shop. But if he had help, been able to hold on to those for a few more weeks, those actually would have risen in value and he would have been, you know, multi, multi billions in the, in, the, in the green. There's parallels here as well, right? Like, you know, the financing came in eight minutes after, you know, like we, we declared and like a lot of this stuff is um, like, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, what happens if, if this, you know, doesn't happen in a week or happens in a month, like maybe it's a different story. It's kind of interesting. Mm. There's another there's another element to this, which is you brought up this idea of. I think there's a lot of parallels actually to be drawn between SBF and Trump, and I don't necessarily want to get political here, but people were at one point there were these theories, right? That Trump is actually a mad genius, right? He's got this all scripted out, and I, ne I never personally bought into that. But what I did think he had a very good sense of was how to talk to a room full of people and how to play the media. And there's an element of playing the media here that I find like a little distasteful, probably. I, I think if I'm being honest in my heart of hearts, I understand why the New York Times did that interview with him. And I think Andrew Ross Sorkin questioned him well enough that I actually thought it was, that was actually pretty good journalism. I actually ended up thinking at the end of the day. But now you've got whoever the guy is from Good Morning America, like flying down to interview him in the Bahamas. Every journalism outlet and podcast wants to interview him. And to me, that feels a little, it feels a little gross. I don't know. I think one of the things I think Trump did really well was, even though he was always at odds with the media and calling it fake news, he clearly found out what the algorithm was. You know, you said these outrageous things and every single news outlet in America covered you. You got probably tens of billions of dollars worth of, of coverage for free. And I wonder if, I think SBF, to his credit, one of the things that he does well, I'm not necessarily convinced anymore he's a master genius, but I do think he has a good sense of what to say to people to get him on his side. He kind of buries a grain of truth in with a bunch of lies, if that makes sense. He said something about ESG. They asked him about the texts, the Vox texts. And he was like, well, do you believe in ESG? He's like, not really. I think most people in this room also don't believe in it. And I think that was kind of a good strategic move in that a lot of people, while they might agree with the ideals of ESG in its current form, it's heavily flawed. So he kind of knows how to sprinkle in some truths with his falsehoods that I think a lot of people find convincing. But whatever it is, he's playing the media, in my opinion. I don't know what you guys think about all this coverage that he's getting. The best sociopaths are the best at doing exactly what you just described. He, he's going for a pardon. That, that's, that's my thinking. That's really the only move that makes sense at this point. You're not going to beat the charges. There's like... Just like Robert Durst cut up a body and then the body existed, like, you know, there is the, there is like physical evidence here. Like there's a negative account balance for most of their customers. There, there's just no way that you can massage that away, but you can get pardoned. I, I'm not convinced that a negative balance necessarily means that there's jail time that needs to be served. I, I, I think you could chop that up to negligence. You could talk it up to, uh, you violated your own terms of service, um, corporate misconduct. But those aren't things that necessarily require jail time. 
the thing like that's that, a that's that borders, a that's a civil the, type of suit. The thing that bridges into the criminal is, and I think this was an in, another interesting part of it, where he was like, "I didn't create the backdoor. I don't even know how to code. It couldn't have, couldn't have been me." But like at a certain point, mechanically, that money has to move, or or it started commingled, and and you know it was a fraud from the start. But like mechanically, there is a point in the value chain where the money moves, and a fraud is committed. Mm. You, you cannot absolve yourself of that sin by going on Good Morning America, although it is funny. Like, how is that the show that he chooses to go on? But that's neither here nor there. Okay, so on the money moving part, one. Something interesting about MF Global, the way that it worked, is there were there were more accounts in this, but there were basically two accounts. There were the customer accounts, and then there was the proprietary trading desk account. And the way that it worked, from a systems perspective, is one dollar that started out in the in the in the morning of the customer accounts. There had to be for every dollar that started out in the morning, there had to be a dollar at night. But that didn't preclude them from moving those dollars around during the day. That's how their actual accounting works at that at mm-hmm. MF Global. So it was a weird thing where you would thought, oh, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? Every dollar, as long as it's there at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, it means customer accounts aren't being touched. In, in reality, there was a lot that you could do between the beginning and the end of the day, right? Um, so I, I do wonder, this is where I frankly just don't know enough about exchange and brokerage systems to, to be an expert here. I don't know if there's a logical, plausible argument to be made that it was a systems breakdown. I, I hope I hope not. That's my sincere hope. But to be honest, I was feeling a little but there, not great. There's only there's only two paths. One is there's a big pot pot of money, and we're doing Alameda position margining and customer withdrawals from the same pot of money. You know yeah. that, that's like the first model. The second model is at some point you know they were separate, and I moved money from one hand to the other to cover it, some sort of shortage. And you know we all assume that it went from FCX to Alameda. Like, in either of those circumstances, a crime has been committed. You know what I'm saying? Like, it happened. I, yeah. I don't know enough to, Mike, what's, to your point. I don't the, know what's enough. What's the third path would be my question. What is the crime that was committed? It's the, the lizard people at the at, who are actually running the world. Uh, they gave him a pardon. <laughs> that's, the, <laughs> that's, the, that's the third path. The crime that was committed was either the funds were commingled to start or the funds moved from one entity to the other when there was a shortage. Both are crimes. Why 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 would be why would commingling funds be a crime? I mean that is a good point. I think it's definitely against their terms of service, which told right. customers exclusively or you know explicitly that that was not happening. That would be fraud just via a, a misrepresentation. Um, th- like that would have been the, the the fraud that was committed. How did you guys think Andrew Russorkin did on one thing that I think is very difficult for? Because it's sort of a sophisticated scam that he was running with everything that he was doing with FTT this sort of low float scams and then borrowing against these low float tokens that he ended up controlling. Frankly, I think that's kind of a a tough concept for a re- regular average person to grok. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of the trick with getting convictions on financial crimes. People don't understand what rigging treasury auctions mean. They're not going to understand games around low float and taking advantage of that. But ultimately, that that might have really been the business model. You know, to lose money on that 
Alameda and FTX side, but borrow heavily and then just take that money out. The thing about that is that like you have the buckets of crime that were committed on the, on the wire fraud, moving money around. The unregistered security side, the same stuff that Michael Milken went to jail for, that's more of the realm of FTT and Serum. Posting that mm. as collateral and borrowing a ton of USD assets against that, that's not a crime. That's like, you know, maybe your counterparties are idiots and they're lending you too much, but like that is not a crime. Let's describe it as a black box. How about? <laughs> did, you, did you hear Jim Chanos? Jim Chanos is like, that was the interview where people realized that that, that, uh, yes. that like what he was doing was, was fucked up. So right after that interview, Vance and I, I remember walking to the office being like, wow, I think we just saw peak SPF. Like it's, it's over, you know? And I, I think the only way to describe it is you have this black box, which you don't, nobody really knows the internals of, but you have a system outside the black box to make the black box be super valuable, really, really like to the tune of billions of dollars, maybe even tens of billions of dollars. And you have found counterparties who are willing to take this black box and use that as collateral in the same way that you would have, you know, a HELOC on your house. It's just like physical capital that you can borrow money against. And the bigger that box is, the more you can borrow and you can do so in an automated way. But when the, the system outside the black box stops working and the black box stops losing, stops increasing value and starts actually losing value, that's where you get a mismatch of assets and liabilities. But I, I mean, it's really, really simple. And to Vance's point, it's not technically illegal. It, it also wasn't. Just, <laughs> it also wasn't just FTT, right? It was like um, Serum. No, but no, but also like what they did with. Um, so so follow this. So BlockFi, did you follow? Did you see that BlockFi suing Robinhood or suing FT suing Sam to get shares in Robinhood? Did you see this whole thing? If you follow the line of, I was trying to work this out with Santi earlier today. I was like, BlockFi is a creditor to FTX that lent to Alameda that lent to Emergent which is Sam's shell company that had bought Robinhood shares that were pledged as collateral to guarantee the BlockFi, uh, to BlockFi the loan to FTX that was used to bail out FTX itself. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's a collateral clusterfuck. <laughs> it's a collateral <laughs> clusterfuck. But it, it goes even further because BlockFi is a creditor of Alameda and DCG, BlockFi is a creditor of Alameda and Three Arrows. And then DCG is also a creditor of Three Arrows. And Three Arrows has all these like startup stakes that all these people are tied into. It's, it's just like a Russian doll of creditorship. It's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, Sam purchased his stake in Robinhood via a shell company, via a loan from Alameda, via a loan from BlockFi. That like, it, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just comical. So let me ask you this. So that entity that holds the Robinhood shares, did that file into bankruptcy? along with the rest of the FTX entities. I don't think mm. it actually did. Emergent? Okay, so the oh, okay, so the it's called the shell company is called Emergent. The largest creditor to BlockFi right now is a uh, is this other company? It's a 700 there, there, there's a 720 million dollar line out to this one company. I'm forgetting the name of it. Akuna or something. Oh, Ancura Trust Company. They have a 730 million dollar unsecured claim. They're the largest creditor to F uh, to BlockFi US. So if you look at the the creditors to BlockFi, it goes SEC, they have a $30 million unsecured claim. Then a client, like an unnamed client has like a $50 million uh, claim. 
then FTX US has a $275 million unsecured claim. Then there's this random trust company at $730 million. So, so Ankara Trust actually does creditor uh, representation. So it'll, it'll bundle up a bunch of creditor claims and be like, all right, we'll go mm. take this on and we'll negotiate with the parent company. So there's a bunch of smaller people who bundle together. Basically. Right. Exactly. If you're trying to restructure yeah. your book, like you can't just go deal with like, you know, tens of thousands of customers. Like you need to have one point of contact where you're like, hey, how does, you know, how does X amount on the dollar sound? All right, everyone, quick break from this episode to talk about our show sponsors, Avalanche. Many of you know Avalanche as the fast, reliable, and scalable layer one. Uh, Av- the folks at Avalanche have a really great message for those of you who are in the crypto industry right now, which is bear markets are for building. So while a bunch of our uh, friends over in CeFi are, are kind of going through these struggles and travails, the folks at Avalanche have basically put their heads down and are shipping products that builders want. The latest solution? Elastic subnets. Right. And just to expand on that, Avalanche is consistently upgrading all of their platforms, right? So on the platform side, you've got Elastic subnets, you've got new VMs. On the infrastructure side of things, you've got Core, which Mike, I just, uh, I know you used that the other day. I was a bridge or. I was a bridge or. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So they're upgrading the infrastructure side with Core and Enclave. The chain has had like no downtime, super customizable for devs. Uh, Yeah, if you're a builder, avax.network, avax.network, great place to be. But do Yano and I as well. So you definitely go check him out, but click the link at the bottom of this episode. Click the link. Otherwise, we're not going to get any credit. Come on. Yeah, click the the link at the bottom. (laughs) Give us the credit. Exactly. So yeah, big thanks to Avalanche. Um, Yeah, I mean, you you just had a great experience with them the other day uh, on the user side of things. So go check them out, guys. Thank us later. Let's get back to the show. Can we talk for a little bit? We talked a lot about DCG and Genesis last episode, but I don't know if you guys saw this. I dropped this in our chat, but there is a... This is speculation but this guy did some pretty good detective work it's a medium post i will i'll link it in the show notes here but on the connection in between three arrows capital dcg and genesis i'm not gonna it it take me 20 minutes to run through all of this but this guy basically looked at a whole bunch of publicly available information public filings that dcg and grayscale had to do because they're you know um public companies that are registered or not public companies but they have to register with the sec and they sort of describe this chain of events and the link in between Three Arrows Capital, Genesis, and DCG. And it is, I felt, I got to be honest, if this is correct, which it's not necessarily 100% positive, I feel a little bit less bad for the situation that DCG and Genesis find, find themselves in because if this is true, it's relatively irresponsible what was going on. But basically, there's a chain of events where wherein Three Arrows Capital borrows BTC from Genesis as a lender with some small amount of collateral. So I'm making up numbers here, but let's say three arrows starts out with like $10 million and they get a hundred million dollar BTC loan from Genesis. That's what Genesis initially did. They did Bitcoin lending. What three arrows capital then did with that Bitcoin is they went to Genesis as an authorized participant for GB for the grayscale Bitcoin trust. And they pled, they gave the Bitcoin and they minted shares of GBTC. Remember, there was an arbitrage there when GBTC was trading at a Bitcoin to at a premium to Bitcoin, where they could pledge the Bitcoin and then wait for six months and then sell the GBTC at NAV. But what they did when they got the GBTC is they went right back to Genesis and then pledged the GBTC as collateral and got a USDC loan. In which case they could that's like a recursive leverage that they're basically getting there. And then they can either either keep running that trade into infinity. Or they can go out and go long a bunch of shit coins, which is apparently what they actually did. So 
it's just it's just incredible to me that so much of what was viewed as oh this was really smart smartest guys in the room was just yeah pretty basic leverage schemes you know i mean if this is actually <laughs> true i mean this industry is just so loaded up on leverage is i don't think anyone realized it it's just un just unreal and it just shit unwound so fast uh yeah, i mean who's much. still lending now probably like a couple of people in DeFi. that's it no there's no CeFi borrowing available at the moment like we've mm. gone from 50 million of, of loans issued in Q4 2019 by Genesis to 50 billion issued in Q4 2021. So we went up 100x and we just completely torched ourselves with all of that leverage. And now we're back down to zero. It's remarkable that we've round tripped this entire thing. Um, and like to your point, Michael, it doesn't look great. Like we don't, I, I don't know if it's true. That's kind of what ever, I mean, we've long suspected, but it does look like some sort of scheme to inflate the GBTC premium and generally just pump crypto assets that they hold. Not a great look. Yeah. Um, as an orthogonal point to all of this, um, you know, we have a number of banking relationships that expand past just like having a bank account and cash management. Uh, anecdotally, talking with them over the last couple of weeks, even the banks, the publicly traded banks, uh, who are registered as banks in the United States, they're not even able to touch any new crypto projects right now. Like they, they have literally like closed for business as well. Uh, at We're least back temporarily. in 2018, 2019 again, when you couldn't literally couldn't get a bank account if you're a crypto company. Yep. It's yep. crazy. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So they're, 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 their party line is like, we're waiting for all the stuff to settle out, you know, like the Silvergate stuff kind of gives us some, some heartburn right now. And um, we just want to wait for everything to cool down before we take on any new customers. It's like, <laughs> We've got portfolio companies that need bank accounts. <laughs> let, let me, let me, little prediction here. I, w I would say that the, the obvious place this leverage ends up in the next cycle is where like the big carry trades present themselves, and like stake ETH in the next cycle is going to blow some people up. That that that's my prediction. People are going to do this recursive leverage thing where they borrow against ETH and they assume it's all good unless the position moves against them, and then either withdrawals are going to get stuck or an ETH drawdown happens and you know, that USD collateral is gonna get blown out. And I think that is kind of like the next obvious place that I think this, this leverage accrues, especially because a lot of the leverage will be DeFi native. So it'll be very interesting to see that trade over the next couple of years play out. I think that's a good prediction. I think the, one of the big takeaways from this, from this whole cycle was just because some, I've, I've kind of broken record saying this, just because something can be used as collateral doesn't mean it should be used as collateral. And Jason and I had this little pet theory where you remember there was a period of time and it kind of, it almost sort of happened a little bit with Bendow, but where people were, every, everyone was trying to take out leverage, use their NFTs as collateral. And that just has disaster right. written all over it. That's just, I'm sorry, that is just not a good idea. That is a, that is always going to end in tears. So I agree with you. I think, what I, what I hope we, we take away from this is not just that C5 failed us, which I think it did, but also that we should be a little bit more judicious in terms of what we use as collateral because that that's how you blow financial systems up. You know, I don't know. Um, all right, I have, I have a, let, let's move on a little bit from our, our doom and gloom here. I want to talk about, because there have been actually good things, cool things happening. Uh, Uniswap launched its NFT front end, I suppose. So we could talk a little bit about this. I don't know if you guys had a chance to. Oh, and back and back end too. Yeah, they launched the whole 
aggregator. I mean, they so they acquired Genie back in June. Um, that like so there so there are two NFT aggregators, Gem and Genie. Uh, OpenSea acquired Gem. Uh, Uniswap acquired Genie. By the way, there's an airdrop available if anyone's used Genie before. I think it was April 15th was the snapshot. So OpenSea uh, Uniswap acquired Genie, and they they basically have uh, integrated it into Uniswap. So if you go to Uniswap right now, you can click NFTs at the top. You click the link and it's going to open a page. You're going to think that you're on OpenSea because it literally looks identical. Uh, but uh, they've, they've got this great aggregator now. It pulls in from like seven or eight different marketplaces. Right. But the reason I was saying that's a front end is because this is a Uniswap Labs product, right? This isn't Uniswap, the foundation, the protocol that's doing this. This is like Genie is Uniswap Labs as opposed to Uniswap the protocol, the, the foundation. This is a, I think it's pretty cool, actually. I kind of think it's a, this is the way that I understand the growth strategy for Uniswap. There are two entities. There's the protocol, which is governed by the foundation, and then there's Uniswap Labs. Uniswap, the protocol, that's the sort of public good, if you want to call it that. I think you could sort of dispute that because it has a token, but that's the basic idea that it's sort of the liquidity layer. And then there's a company, Uniswap Labs, which has equity, and they're supposed to build products on top of Uniswap, the protocol that leveraged that protocol. That's what Genie was. I think that's what this is. So I, I kind of think it's, it's cool. I think the, the governance structure of a DAO for Uniswap, the protocol makes a lot of sense. You want that to be decentralized, I think. But then when you're building consumer facing products like this, you probably want a company doing that because they can be more responsive to customer needs, move faster and be more competitive. So I personally just thought this was kind of cool. And I think it's sort of an affirmation or directionally right for how DAOs could ultimately build and scale products. I don't know if you guys have any other thoughts on this. The interesting stuff that's happening to the NFT market right now are you have uh, NFT or NFT DEXs like X2, Y2, um, Blur, uh, you know, other ones that are basically building their own captive order books and they're doing it through things like, you know, no fee trading and that attracts like a different cross section of customers and like they're starting to chip away at the OpenSea order book, which has canonically been like their really big moat. And that's kind of like one thing that's happening. The other thing that's happening is things like Reservoir are launching, which is kind of just like aggregated liquidity for all NFT order books. So like you can just build a front end and plug into this like open source liquidity. And that's historically not been available. And it just looks like people are just gradually chipping away at OpenSea's kind of moat. And I think like they're kind mm. of the big loser in all of this is like, I don't know what their market share is going to look like by the time the next NFT bull run comes back. They may be like a 10 or 20% share player versus like 80 or 90% or whatever they're at today. Yeah, I think Uniswap dominate. Like if I'm going to buy an, uh, an NFT right now, I'm going to Uniswap and I'm using this. Um, so I why? think, but I'm a re, but I'm, why you said? Yeah. Because uh, I'm a retail, NF, uh, retail NFT buyer. Like I'm not buying anything in size. I'm just like, buying a crypto dick butt here and there, you know? So, um, mm -hmm. and I, I just think they have the, uh, <laughs> I just think they have the, like they have the best pricing now. So uh, that's why I would do it. If you're an, like, I don't know if you read Meltem's piece about like the institutions are coming to, to NFTs. Um, like an, the institutional folks are not gonna trade on, on this Uniswap thing, but like, I think Uniswap will, will win the retail game here. I'm not sure the institutions are coming for NFTs. I, I don't know. I don't know if I quite believe that. Honestly. I'm just saying if they do, if they do end up coming because there's arbitrage opportunities or because you can trade whatever, um, they're not going to use this Uniswap platform. 
I, I think it's highly. What do you use? What, what, what do you use to trade? Yeah, what do you use if you want to go buy an NFT right now? OpenSea. I mean, that was before Uniswap was was uh, yeah was available. We also use Genie and and uh, and Gem. I just like when like I I never really used OpenSea that much. I always used Gem, just because it was like why why not use an aggregator? You know. On the rare times that I decided to lose money in NFTs, I did OpenSea, <laughs> which was consistently lost money on every NFT I bought, except for Permies. Actually, plug yeah. shout out there. Permies are pumping right now. The yeah. 13 billion OpenSea valuation is looking like increasingly suspect. Just as these products launch, as NFT volumes change and go down, um, it's definitely not the same market that they raised in. Yeah. Well, the OpenSea valuation. Those are the valuation, craziest margins of any company I've ever seen, though. So. Yeah, but those were all. I think if you were putting your sophisticated due diligence hat on, you should have known that those operating margins were going to fall, right? That's what everyone said. There were, I mean, I never saw the investment decks or anything, but what I heard from some investors who, who participated was 98% operating margin or something like that. But I think, I think the $13 billion valuation that OpenSea got was more about the dynamic of, there was a, there was a pretty big bubble in especially later stage private, uh, you know, like equity for crypto companies as opposed to just necessarily the tokens because the Tiger Globals of the world are those... Um, like the altimeters or whatever, the guys that were really pumping up the valuations, even the SoftBank, it was just much easier for them to own equity than tokens. So I think there are a couple companies like that. I don't necessarily want to point any fingers, but there are a couple really pretty eye-watering valuations on the private side of things that I think still have to collapse. I still don't really think they've necessarily taken their own medicine there. So it was kind of, I mean, they were sort of a a really sexy sector in a in a part of the market that I think there was a, pretty decent bubble i don't know vance or michael as vcs if you guys have thoughts on that we've kind of we kind of did not invest in the nfe exchanges of of the last few years just because our view on nfts is that the market as it stands right now is not going to be how it's long-term defined like the nft marketplaces that are existing to us are the canonical games marketplace you know the canonical fashion nft marketplace and like frankly that just doesn't feel like uniswap is going to win it doesn't feel like OpenSea is going to win it it feels like it's going to be more vertically oriented players and so we're holding off like we think like things like stardust could very easily be like the canonical nft gaming layer just because they provide all the value-added services on top of that for game devs but like the entry into that market is a lot different than just like i'll list a bunch of pfps on my you know pre-existing crypto app front end and, and just go after the market so it's, it's, yeah, it's a little bit different in terms of how we see it evolving, I would say. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on, I'm not sure if you are familiar with Gabriel Layden, but he's got sort of an interesting thesis about NFTs around free to own as an idea where he kind of reversed, you know, at least I thought it was interesting what he was, I haven't really dedicated an enormous amount of thought to it, but, you know, his, his sort of idea was that just like there's, what, there's an there's an analogy in mobile gaming that you guys would probably know much better than me, but free to play, this would be free to own. So you get your NFTs kind of for free and it's sort of a Trojan horse for most people. The way that they first interact with crypto will be through these free NFTs that you know many won't gain value, but some of them will. And then once they go, oh, I've got this NFT and it was free in the beginning, but now it's gone up. So I'm incentivized to become a part of this ecosystem. Oh, like what is this actually based off? This is on you know, this plugs into Ethereum as an ecosystem and that's going to sort of Trojan horse and that will be the way that a bunch of people come into this space. Do you guys have any thoughts on that whole model? 
I mean, the crux of that whole model is that by exchanging the, you know, you mint the NFTs for free, you exchange them, you play with them, you, you, you know, ascribe more value to them. Like you have to create something of value on chain. That's like the whole crux of the argument is that like, you don't pay anything for it, but by, by like socially signaling, using it, you know, using it in games, you can actually create something that other people would want to pay for. And I think that's correct. Like we've seen a bunch of examples of people bootstrap on-chain value and on-chain community. And so it doesn't feel very different from the core arguments of like, why is crypto powerful generally? Um, I think the question is like scale. Can you create, like one of Gabriel Layden's things is like, you know, we're gonna see a billion dollar NFT at some point. And like, if you have like a billion dollar NFT, you can bootstrap like, you know, like a, a like a hundred million to a billion user community. Like that's all you need. Like, do I think that that can happen? I would say that's actually probably, that's probable, you know, in the near future. We've seen billions of dollars of TVL flow into these DeFi protocols. Like, why wouldn't we be able to create something that's worth, you know, a billion dollars that's just non-fungible? Like that feels like a pretty attainable goal. And so I don't disagree with any of like his core tenets. I think people have, bones to pick about his strategy and how he executes like doing a super bowl ad is that the best way to bootstrap on-chain value at mass scale I, I would say you know maybe i don't know like you know he's he's done this before he kind of failed you know in in whatever the machine zone uh company was he sold it for you know parts but like i do think the core thesis is very much intact and it's at least logical. I mean, I completely agree. I think the place where Gabe is probably most correct and this is stuff that we've talked about before on the pod is his positivity towards the Apple regulations, the the change in the terms where you can use IAP to purchase you have to use IAP to purchase in app uh, NFTs. Um, one of the anecdotes that we've heard recently uh, is that for anyone who has NFTs baked into their mobile-based game, what they're seeing is that the number, the percentage of users that are monetizing is up two to three X and the amount of people, the amount of purchase price, ASP, that people are buying is up two to three X as well. And so if you have the ability to have NFTs that are sold in app via IAP in the same channels that people are used to with traditional gaming, you're looking at a four to nine X increase in your GMV for your game. And <clears throat> I think, you know, the future of what these like NFT worlds looks is a little bit more centralized. It's a little bit more of a Trojan horse into having a hundred million people with private keys in a wallet. Uh, maybe we see a billion dollar NFT eventually, but I, I think generally what we will definitely see is that these NFTs are just gonna be everywhere. You're gonna have NFTs for games that you don't play anymore. You're gonna have NFTs for like programs that you joined. You get like marketing NFTs. You can start to think about like user attribution NFTs. Um, it's, it, I, I think the future of what, you know, social on blockchain looks like is, is dominant with NFTs as the core technology and in innovation. And, and we're also not like guessing anymore. Like we're starting to see this play out at a very small scale with like specific games that are either in our portfolio or, you know, are building on top of Stardust. Like we're seeing like the 2 million monthly active user game in Europe that has the back end of Solana NFTs, but the people don't know that they're using them start to happen. Like there's like a few success cases like that. And so I would say we've kind of moved from like the thesis to like, you know, the testing it out to like it being real uh, spectrum of like, okay, the thesis is real. It's playing out at a small scale. Now it's like, how do these small games break out into being these mass scale successes? But like, we're starting to prove that out, which is, I think the most positive thing. I was, I was going to pivot a little uh, to a related topic, but one of the most interesting things this week actually is what Coinbase tweeted out earlier 
today about the about the App Store. So um, I just want to go. I want to go there. I want to get Michael and Vance's take on that. So Coinbase Wallet tweeted out. He said, uh, "They said you might have noticed you can't send NFTs on Coinbase Wallet iOS anymore. This is because Apple blocked our last app release until we disabled the feature." And what Apple's claiming is that the gas fees, this is here, I'll just actually keep reading what they said. They said Apple's claim is that the gas fees required to send NFTs need to be paid through their in-app purchase system so they can collect 30% of the gas fee. For anyone who understands how NFTs and blockchains work, this is clearly not possible. Apple's proprietary in-app purchase system uh, does not even support crypto, so we couldn't comply even if we tried. This is akin to Apple trying to take a cut of fees for every email that gets sent over open internet protocols. So, um, yeah, Michael Vance, what do you guys think about this? Um, well, first and foremost, I think everybody thinks that Apple has this like fully fledged, like complete idea of how, you know, the, the terms and conditions and app store guidelines are going to work for this, for this web three world. I think in reality, they're just like starting to piece together all the different variables and all the different components. And they're going to run into situations like this, where you have a decentralized, a non-custodial wallet in the form of uh, Coinbase wallet. And, and because of that, you have to use crypto to facilitate transactions, where if it was a custodial experience and you were sending assets from one, one custodial experience to another, another address, you would assume that the custodial wallet would be paying the gas fees for making that transaction. So, you know, that's a major flip in terms of how these systems would work and how, how you'd be interacting with them in, in an iOS ecosystem. Apple, I think, is really just trying to like come up with a model that works for most use cases. It probably won't work for all use cases. Um, but I'd say right now, the, the way that it looks for Apple is that they just have no clue what they're doing when it comes to you know, how they're going to enforce this, how they're going to actually decide who's in and who's out and in what ways. And um, I would also say uh, that um, <clears throat> the, the IAP system itself has no possible way of making this work for the way that Apple is requiring it to work. There is no possible way that you can have a user pay money to facilitate a blockchain transaction to then be able to transfer a blockchain asset. It's just impossible because not only is there a cash settlement that happens in a delayed fashion, but there's no recognition of when that actually happened. There's no, there's no API hooks back to say this thing actually settled. You basically get a report as the developer at the end of a period of time on everybody who made purchases. And, and then you credit those, those purchases in the app itself. But if somebody, if somebody refunds, you have to refund that asset back, those, that value back. And there's no way to convert from like, let's say US dollars into ETH to facilitate an NFT transaction. So the system itself, they, they have no incentive to increase the, the flexibility or the capabilities of the IFP system itself. They just say, here's our system, comply with it or choose not to, it's up to you. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that this is gonna be the, the hill that um, people need to die on for Apple to make their changes to the system. But I, I, this will be a good conversation point to have uh, with the Apple team on if they are serious about integrating, you know, ETH transactions or blockchain transactions into apps. This will be at least an initial conversation point. There, there's going to be some sort of window for custodial wallets to build out workarounds that can somewhat satisfy this criteria. And I think that's kind of where Apple naturally pushes. Well, they're like, you know, we'll comply. Like, we're not changing our rules. You guys just have to comply. It's like, well, 
you know, the only way that we can do that is if we have this custodial wallet where we can mark to market the transaction, add another 30%, give you your 30%, and then somehow process the blockchain transaction you know, while that's all going on. Like, that's kind of the only way that you, you know, like, if you take this a step further, really comply with this. If it's non-custodial, I really don't see how you can, like, mechanically work with the App Store. And I, and I think that's kind of the big thing here is that custodial architecture in some forms, especially when interfacing with the App Store, going to be super important when you're thinking about how NFTs move and are bought and are minted and things like that. Hmm. Man, you know, it's funny. There's a lot of movement in antitrust right now, especially against... Well, here's, here's a good example of why the quota public opinion matters, because people generally, not speaking about my own personal opinion, are less sympathetic to Mark Zuckerberg because kind of comes across as a little bit of a robot, but Apple has phenomenal PR. And right now, antitrust is up Mark Zuckerberg's ass, and he's getting his shit rocked by TikTok. And meanwhile, Apple has a 30% take rate on one of two different options, the other which is owned by Google. It's the Android. Yep. And you've got no alternative options. So I think they have the clearest definition of a monopoly when it comes to the App Store, but public opinion got Tim uh, Cook looking like a unfortunately, unfortunately not yeah unfortunately not in the eyes of the Supreme Court though hmm. uh, like Apple is like a like a national security apparatus at this point like their monopoly is in, in place for a reason that is not just like it's the best product it's like the US phone and chip manufacturer that controls all basically the points of exit and entry into the mobile and, and you know iOS app stores like that's a choke point that the government has a very vested interest in controlling. I think 30% is their way of just rationalizing that. I wonder who's next That's after strange. Tim Cook. It's going to be really interesting to see who, who the next generation of Apple is. Do you know enough? I don't, I don't know enough about the, who the potential successors are. Could be. Probably would have been Jimmy Ive, but he's gone. No. No chance. No chance. No chance. He's, he's I, 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 wish it, I, wish it I wish it would have been so then they could have gotten back to building good stuff. Well, they would have it, built pretty so stuff. So here, here's what I will say. Uh, yeah. Here's, here's what I will say. Uh, it's going to be someone internal, I would assume. Um, it, they, they have had zero success uh, bringing in outside people to run the company. Um, and I would also say it's probably going to be someone who's more operationally focused, financially focused, and just like general management focused, less someone who's like the product guru that you saw with Steve Jobs and, and Jimmy Ive. Um, it's not- Well, Tim, it's, Cook, it's Tim really, Cook was the, was the operational guy. He's he the was the supply guy. Exactly. Supply, it, no, exactly. Supply I, I think it's gonna, it's gonna look, you know, Jeff Williams is the COO right now. Uh, he's sort of the, the like number two behind um, Tim Cook in terms of, you know, like running the business. Uh, he could be a good potential candidate. Um, you know, the, I, I bet it's a, I that, bet it's a deep, deep engineering guy. I bet it's someone more technical. Um, it's like in someone, I, I, have a, I bet it's someone who's like deep AI person or deep engineering person. That's that's what my bet would be. I have no idea, no clue. But. Did you see the Apple's little PR snafu that they got into this week? With no, what was airdrops it? About oh, yeah. For Chinese protesters. Wait, what did they that do? Could, no. That could be a total nothing burger or it could actually be a slightly bigger deal that is being covered. So the gist is that there was an update, like a software update that got patched by Apple, which limited 
the ability to do airdrops that applied only to iPhones that were sold within mainland China. So this was people, you know, China has their their firewall that allows information to not get in necessarily to China, but they also limit how people communicate within their borders. And airdrop was something that protesters were using to circumvent circumvent some of the censorship messages, uh, the censorship uh, things that China had in place or the CCP had in place. And what it looks like is that the CCP called up Tim Cook and said, we don't like these people that are protesting. Can you do us a solid? And Tim Cook said, sure, sure thing. So it's, you know, it's not, it's not an excellent PR look, but I mean, at a certain point, all the iPhones are made in China. So I don't know. I guess he's kind of got to do what he's got to do. You got to wonder, like, what went down? Because there was a time where you couldn't get iPhones in China. Mm. Uh, you know, they were, they were made there, but you couldn't get them. And it's sort of like what went down, what back doors were, were facilitated to make that possible to start selling those devices in country. And it's kind of like that, you know, the negotiation from the movies and every sort of movie where it's like, listen, you owe me a favor and I'm going to call on it one day. <laughs> Literally, this is that day. No, you don't think it's no. I mean, it's probably because Tim, it's, they were allowed to start selling because they moved all their manufacturing to China. I'm sure. No, e- e- they I were mean, manufacturing there and still not able to. Haven't sell in they China. one by one? Oh, interesting. They, they they capitulated sort of one by. Didn't Google do this as well? Google said we'll never censor our algorithm or whatever, and then then they kind of did. I mean, it's. I mean, that's. I think China's just too large of a market to ignore. They've got one and a half billion people or whatever they have over there. So someone did a good chart actually showing the where China sells its products into and where all the growth is coming from. And I'll see if I can find it on Twitter, but I was looking at it. You can basically tell all of the growth is coming from the Chinese market for Apple. So they kind of got to do what they're right. going to do. Yeah. I mean, I think near term, more of the growth is actually coming from India. And and like one of the big things when people look at Apple and analyze it is when is India going to be a larger market than China? And I think mm. they have that pegged for the next five years. So it's kind of interesting. Like, you know, it's, it's like a more of a U.S. friendly country. It's like a place where we can you can domicile your manufacturing if you're Apple. It's a place like where you can sell a ton of iPhones as it gets more digital and more you know mobile aligned. Like it'll be interesting to see if, if Apple rotates and I think they're in the very early innings of doing that with just moving things like Vietnam and, and other places in Southeast Asia. But mm. it'll be interesting to see. The last story to touch on here was there are more, more layoffs in, in crypto land, at least. Kraken laid off about a third, roughly, of its workforce. So that was about 1,100 or so full-time employees that Kraken laid off. Do you... You know, do you see any more layoffs coming? I mean, we had kind of this round that I think Jason and I talked about this a lot that felt relatively light. You know, that people were announcing riffs about 10%. There were funny numbers, like 10%, 13%, 14%. And it just felt a little bit light. So seeing 30% from Kraken, actually, to me, you know, Jesse's he's an OG. He's seen multiple cycles. He's been around for a long time. I don't know. What do you guys do? You guys think that there are more layoffs that have yet to come? Have some not been announced in crypto? I mean, either feel free to comment on crypto or like Web two more broadly as well. 
I think there's a lot that haven't been announced in crypto, just like startups that have kind of shut down. And, and like how we can tell this is that the talent market is, there's just a ton of people on the market, more than have been announced in these layoffs. And I think that's really positive if you're hiring. I don't know. It depends on how long the, the bear market lasts for, but I see things turning pretty soon. And I don't think we're going to see like another 50% cuts. Like I, I do think this is kind of as low as we get for the big companies, but the startups, you're going to see more rolling shutdowns generally. I agree with, I agree with Vance. I think that's a good take. I, agree, I, I think that some of the big too. companies yeah. have like done their, done a lot of their cuts. You just probably don't hear about them. Um, but like I was on the phone with the founder earlier today and they were a crypto company for all I knew. And then, and then they were like, oh yeah, we don't do crypto anymore. Like we, we cut our, we cut our, we, we laid off the whole crypto team. I was like, but you raised money as a crypto company. What do you mean? You're not a crypto team. What do you mean? What do you mean? That was your whole thing. You were, what did they, what did they pivot towards? What did they pivot towards? FinTech. Fintech. <laughs> oh, of yeah. course. Yeah, we're just Fintech now. Yeah. So there's going to be a lot more of those. And there's going to be a lot of companies that can't rate. Like, I think start a lot of startups that just, they're like so far from profitability. It's like easier just to shut down and either start over or go or go join a company. If, if you raised at the end of 2021 and you had two years of runway, now you have a year of runway, maybe less. And you're really kind of deciding, like, how do we, how do I make this work? Like this is when you're making the big cuts. This feels like kind of the time period where, at least for the startups, you're going to see a few more people at least hitting the market. It's okay mm -hmm. though. I think it's. I think it's. I I agree with that take as well. I think there there was a period of time where people were saying back, you know, during the first big sell off around Terra Luna, where people were saying, "Oh, there's gr there's great talent on the market," and I don't think we really necessarily saw that. But I think even in the last month, it's been a completely different market for talent and good peeps yeah yeah good peeps good peeps around that's how sure. it is though you got to cut to survive sometimes like you got to you know take terms that you might not otherwise entertain like i like i really don't see layoffs as like a, oh my god they're laying people off it's like you know this is just how it works like you got to contract you got to expand with the market and sometimes you kind of get caught in the wrong position but the people who are not cutting are just not going to make it it's kind of that simple that's I I think that's actually something that I mean, Jason and I have found that before. But there's a there's a there's a misunderstanding sometimes, which is when you you announce a, a cut. It, obviously, if it's a seventy percent cut, then yeah, there's a big problem, <laughs> you know. But right. uh, if it, if it's some if it's something manageable, anywhere from ten to thirty percent, oftentimes that's the mark of founders who have kind of been there before and they know what they need to do to survive. Whereas sometimes when you don't cut companies that don't cut that should that's perceived as a signal of strength oh we're not cutting because you know we, we must not need to but a lot of the times i'd venture probably more often than not especially in a young industry like crypto that's more often the mark of an inexperienced founder i, I say as a first-time founder but you know i think that's largely you can see people make that mistake you, sure. you guys have been through a couple of cycles like we were at the blockworks chicago 2019 conference like there's definitely been a few iterations of blockworks like you guys have had to you know fight to survive at times like that's just kind of how it is yeah breach breach breach, breach. breach. coin alts um, great event that yeah that didn't Meltem give the keynote that year Meltem did yeah same the same one who bullied you into your first dick butt purchase melted to Paris. Uh, no, that was Aubrey Strabell. Aubrey just bod <laughs> absolutely awesome. bodied me. Yeah. Just, you know, you know, comes back from his party at David Hoffman's and he's like, I got a, I got a, I got a dick butt. And I didn't really think anything of it. Then I went to his place next week and I saw Aubrey Strabell. She's like, 
I bully your partner into getting a spare. I was like, ah, that's how it happened. Is her and, uh, is her and yeah. Alex, uh, I forget his last name, uh, at Try Lolly, at Lolly. They just yeah, paused on me. Yeah. I stood Good no people. chance. Yeah. All right. That's it? All right. Yeah, I think we can wrap it up. We wanted to do, Vance, we were talking about this before you came on, but like, uh, we wanted to get your founder dynamic, yours and, and Michael's. Oh, he's back on our here. Our founder dynamic? The fat, yeah. I want to know who's the who's the optimistic one between the two. Like, what's the dynamic kind of look like? I've got got these questions, but we can also wait till next week because it seems like Michael's Wi-Fi is. Michael's uh, on the fritz over here. He's on the fritz. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, 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 we started this episode. I, we started this episode. I thought Vance was on the fritz, but man, Michael is on the real fritz. Uh, In such cases. The machines are letting Jesus. you down, man. I'm with you. The machines are not to be trusted. Uh, no. We we should cover founder dynamics at a certain point because they are they're pretty funny, in terms of how other people have described it. Let's do it next episode. Let's do it next step. We got to give the people something something to look forward to. Fellas, it's been another great episode. We'll see you next week. Bye.